Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And what we're gonna do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then get you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing all right. I can't hear out of one of my ears, but I'm recovering from the first week back to school, so it kind of feels nice to get out. Yes, but I think both of us are in a, a fairly good mood because we had that wonderful gift. Whoa. Of gunshots? Of gunshots. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> put a pin in what I was just about to say because why don't we tell people where we are? We're at a place called the Hampton Brook Woods Wildlife Management Area. Yeah, it's right in my hometown of Hamburg, New York, yeah. but I didn't know about it. Mine so, too. Yeah. Yeah. This is my hometown. These are actually the woods that I grew up in. Really? These woods back here are where I played, where I broke my leg, where I <laughs> drank my first beer. <laughs> <laughs> Probably related to breaking your leg. <laughs> No. But uh, I think someone might be managing wildlife close by. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I'm trying to think, are there any seasons opened right now? I have no idea. I have no idea either. That's a little concerning. Right. And we are not wearing bright colors either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the advantage to not hunting is that we don't we're not murderers but the disadvantage is we don't know if there's other murderers around no i'm kidding guys honestly i'm kidding don't get mad at us <laughs> all right well what i was gonna say before the the gunshot disturbed our our morning walk here yeah. we just came off a week where there was a, a small blizzard here in western new york oh yeah we had that most wonderful thing that people involved in education can get, snow days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the university doesn't do many snow days, so Yeah, it was I couldn't nice. believe it that you had two, and yeah. uh, my school district had three. Wow. And I always tell people that when I went to school to become a teacher to grad school, we had to do these reflection papers about what we thought school was going to be like, what our classrooms were going to be like. And I still remember I wrote a piece saying that when I'm a teacher, I'm going to have a classroom where when there's a snow day, the kids and I were all disappointed. And I've been teaching for 13 years and that has never happened. <laughs> <laughs> that phone call comes and it's always, ah. <laughs> yeah. It's always a wonderful feeling. <laughs> all right, so uh, what are we here to talk about today? I don't know. <laughs> I, I did nothing. <laughs> this is an episode Steve did no prep for whatsoever. Yeah, it, that's almost like every other episode, except for the night before is the only difference. <laughs> oh, come on, that's not true. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, but for this one, uh, Steve was Steve was busy. He's been busy. Mm -hmm. So I did the research for this one, and this one's going to be a little bit of a, a different type of episode. It's all going to be lies. <laughs> no, that's usually what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but these will be spread out lies because really oh. <laughs> I thought, I was trying to think of a topic for this month and we've done so many specific species episodes. Mm -hmm. Last month we did the, the Downy and Harry episode and yeah. that was a little more uh, spread out. But I thought, you know what? It's February, it's winter time. Why don't we just look up some research about that's related to snow? Okay. So that's what I did. I just went out and gathered a whole bunch of papers and probably not going to get through them all. So mm -hmm. we'll see. I have no idea how long each one's going to take, but uh, I'll get to what I think are the best. And I do have to say, spoiler alert though, that the one I'm most excited, most interested about does focus on a single species of wildlife. 
in its relationship to snow. But no, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, okay, they're gonna be they're gonna be a good one. Yeah. So a bit of a teaser for one we might not get to. <laughs> so we better talk about that one. I should say, our last episode, I started off with an announcement of sorts or at least a teaser of an announcement. Oh yeah, I thought you were gonna say that you were having another kid or something. No. Like it, You were really setting it up like, oh, you don't know what's going on in my life right now. Linda's pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> like I was waiting for something like that, but I think it's just that in my personal life, we've had many pregnancies recently. Not. <laughs> Not with me, but... <laughs> Steve's, <laughs> you found out multiple pregnancies. <laughs> All right, Steve. All my side chicks, man. <laughs> All right, so the last episode, I, I said that I might have Lyme disease. Yes. And uh, I'm a little hurt that you, you didn't ask when we started recording today. You didn't even seem to care at all. We didn't record from your bedside, so I figured <laughs> I figured you were okay. So I was having some strange symptoms. Right before we recorded the last episode, I, I had blood drawn and they were testing it. But hmm. did, did I tell you what the results were? Because we I, I think you did tell okay, me. Okay, so yeah, so they did come back negative for Lyme disease. Right. It looks like I, I had fought off some kind of flu-like syndrome, and then I still have some kind of tingling in my hands and feet, but I'm working with my doctor. We're looking into what that, that could be in my hands. It may be related to carpal tunnel, so we're going to look really? into that. But did you get any feedback from listeners re- regarding the uh, Lyme disease announcement? Oh, no. Okay, because didn't, we didn't get anything from the Internet realm, but just from people that I know, I did have some people say, gee, Bill, you, you seem to be taking the whole issue of Lyme disease kind of lightly. <laughs> They they just felt it but was. I thought you you said you got you went to your doctor and I that did you tested it and all that. But they felt we were a little too jokey about it. Um, okay. And and honestly, I did that intentionally mm-hmm. because I just feel too often the reaction to Lyme disease is this extreme. Oh my God! This horrible epidemic and right. yes, it is an issue. Yes, it's something that needs to be addressed if you're outside and something you need to be thinking about. And yes, I understand symptoms can be bad, and uh, if it's not caught, it can affect you long term. But in the grand scheme of afflictions that are out there, and because people are preventing or trying to prevent other people from going outside because of Lyme disease, I just feel it's blown out of proportion. So I was trying to take a more lighthearted approach (laughs) to do the other extreme. (laughs) But all that is to say, folks, I don't want anyone to think that I take Lyme disease lightly. It's mm-hmm. serious, but as two people doing a rational podcast, we're very skeptical people. Yeah. We want it to be approached skeptically. Right. And before people write in, yes, I do know that tests for Lyme disease do have a high degree of unreliability. I am going to get tested again, so I'm on top of it. Yeah, I was going to say, that watch this be a false positive. <laughs> no, or <laughs> false collapse, negative. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> All right, so enough about Lyme disease. Let's talk about our topic today and just a little bit more about where we are right now. Why don't Mm -hmm. you describe the woods around us? Well, just looking around, I'm seeing a lot of hardwood trees. Yeah. (laughs) No leaves on them, except for the beaches. Yeah. (laughs) We have a number of beaches with their leaves still, uh, their uh, tannish leaves still (laughs) hanging on, crinkling in the wind. Like most of the forests were around here, a second growth forest. So mm-hmm. they're the tre- probably beech, maple, hemlock. And most of the trees don't look over 100 years old. This was mm-hmm. logged not too long ago. A little bit of black cherry. Mm-hmm. It paints a really nice winter scene yeah. for sure. And there is 10 to 12 inches of snow on the ground, would you say? Yeah, not much. Not much. Well, we've had a warm up. Yeah, so <laughs> we should say about the cold weather is that we were fortunate that in our area it was only about zero degrees. Yeah. 
Whereas in the Midwest, you had negative 30s or negative 40s. I don't know. It was pretty intense. Yeah. But by tomorrow, it should be 50 degrees. <laughs> so I'm so, watching my basement for flooding. Yeah, so all within one week, we've had anywhere from zero to, to about 50, 50 degrees. degrees. Yeah, yeah. So We should say, we didn't say that we are about 25, 30 minutes southeast of Buffalo. Again, our usual stomping grounds. So let's get into it, folks. So I'm going to start by asking Steve a question. Steve, how much snow accumulates in North America each year? Oh my God, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, it turns out a lot more than scientists thought. So one of the first studies I came across, it's one of the first of its kind. Researchers are trying to estimate the snow volume for the entire continent. Mm -hmm. And you might ask, why would they want to do this? Well, not only do I want to know why, but I'm curious, they did it in a like a time series or it well, has changed? I'm going to get into that. Okay, yeah. So one of the reasons you, you might want to know this is because you would want estimates of available fresh water, but also it's going to help us understand the Earth's water cycle better. Mm -hmm. I know we've all seen that simplified version of uh, <laughs> the yeah. water cycle, right. but in terms of the specifics, there's still a lot we don't know about it. But what this study did is it took climate model data and then it combined it with satellite data. Previously, scientists felt that we probably got more snow that fell on the plains, the flatter areas of the continent. It was estimated that about two-thirds of our snow fell on the plains and about one-third of the snow accumulated on our mountains. And this is for North America. Okay. But this research said that the exact opposite of that is true. Oh. So about 60% of our snow accumulation happens in the mountains especially with the Canadian Rockies, and then the rest falls on the flatter areas. And they had trouble with this because satellite imagery is pretty good at measuring snow depth in flatter areas. There's mm -hmm. still, you know, a lot of inconsistency with it, but sure. the mountains, mountainous regions, it's just too difficult with... All the changes in elevation. Yeah, all the, 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 angles the, the rough topography. And, yeah. it's, it's just too hard. So this is a big step towards understanding the true extent of freshwater on the continent. The results show that mountains on the continent play a much larger role in our water budget than we knew. So I asked you how much snow falls yeah. on the continent. You were going to say something? Not a guess. Okay. <laughs> in the past, it was thought that more than 750 cubic miles of snow fell each year. Hmm. Cubic miles, just wrap your head. I'm, I'm picturing a gigantic cube hovering in the air. <laughs> right. That's 700 miles in all three dimensions. There we go. That's right. Yeah. And that was the previous estimate. But the new total, it's actually closer to 1,200 cubic miles. Oh. Wow. So what does that mean, right? Almost twice as much. <laughs> it does mean twice as much. But what is but that spread number? Out, spread out over very large areas. Right. So. so if you spread that out over the whole surface of North America, it would cover the continent about seven and a half inches deep. And then if you just buried Ohio under that, it would be 150 feet of snow. I like that um, idea. Again, these, are, these are just, you know, big Wait, numbers. Is that, is that what they wrote in the paper? If you if we buried Ohio? Yes. And I thought you were going to say, why Why did they pick Ohio? Yeah, yeah. Because the research was at a university in Ohio. Got it. That's why they did that. They weren't just picking on Ohio. So as I mentioned previously, this shows that mountainous regions play a much larger role, and especially the Canadian Rockies, because they included the Canadian Rockies as well as 10 other mountain ranges in North America. And about 60% of that snow accumulation, as I said, happens in the mountains, but the Canadian Rockies hold as much snow as the other 10 mountain ranges combined. Whoa. So the Canadian Rockies are where a significantly large amount of our continental snow does fall. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that part of Canada, how so. far north does it go? 
I don't know how yeah. far north they go. I'm trying so. to, my, my geography is failing me. We'll put it into the episode now. Sure. See, and you know why? Because nobody ever thinks about Canada. <laughs> Canada, once again, proves its greatness. Yeah, they're just a bunch of stoners. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So speaking of the far north, that's the perfect segue to my next study. But Steve is looking a little chilly. So yeah. you want to move a little bit? <laughs> sure, yeah. So I'm sure you, as well as our listeners, have heard the old trope about Eskimos having more than a hundred words for snow. I came so close to making a joke about this <laughs> when you had first brought up the topic. <laughs> well, that actually did come up in the research. Yeah. So that all, all goes back to uh, an anthropologist from the early 1900s, Franz Boas, who made that claim. It's often grossly oversimplified, his actual claim, which was a little more scientific. Yeah. But subsequent research has shown that it's often misinterpreted because these these language like the Yupik language and the Inuit languages, there's there's a lot of languages up there. What Boaz may have considered words, you could relate it to English by saying, how many sentences could we have about snow? Oh. I mean, we could literally create dozens and dozens of different ways about talking about snow in a single sentence. So what constitutes a word in these languages? it doesn't exactly translate to what we think of as a word in English. Right, so it wouldn't be a word as much as it might be, oh, this is really good packing snow. Right. Oh, this is good snowman <laughs> snow, or oh, it's, it's that snow with the crispy layer on top. Yeah. Right, they're taking a root word and then they're adding different parts to that root word yeah. to say different things about snow. But the research that I'm looking at, this came out in 2016, there were researchers that looked at how northern cultures, like the Inuit, like the Yupik, talk about snow, and then they compared it to how cultures in warmer climates talk about snow. And they linked those words to local climates and geography worldwide. So what they found is that languages from warm parts of the world are more likely to use the same word for snow and ice. So people in these warmer climates where snow is less of a concern, they're less likely to care as much about the difference between snow and ice. For example, they'll use one word to describe both, like Hawaiians use the word how, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, for snow and ice. It, the, the joke is way too obvious to make. I feel bad making it, but it starts snowing in Hawaii. How? <laughs> ah, did you just come up with that now? <laughs> yeah, I just, wow. I thought it was too obvious, that, so I didn't want to say it, but sorry guys. <laughs> That's, that was good, that was quick. <laughs> But the, the researchers just went on to say that the idea is, is that languages reflect the needs of their speakers, and that's a general concept that can be applied. Yeah. So yes, of course, someone who lives in a place where snow and ice are there for most of the year, you're going to have a more diverse vocabulary for it. Yeah, I'm sure the people in Hawaii have more words for swimsuits <laughs> than the Eskimos did. Probably. <laughs> All right. One piece, bikini, two piece. <laughs> Trunks, speedo. They have a lot of words for those far up, up north. Okay, let's talk about wildlife now. For this next part, I want to do a little bit of a, of a review and a little bit of a plug for our episode on the Subnivian Zone. Got it. So this should not be a quiz to me because I know it. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Subnivian Zone here. Just real basics, but if you want the in-depth story, go and listen to our episode on the Subnivian Zone, a winter underland. Yeah. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> I know you didn't like it as much. <laughs> Steve overthinks it. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about how climate change is affecting the Subnivian Zone. We touched on that in that episode, but I, I felt it was important to touch on here as well. 
because this relates to the, the study that I was talking about at the beginning with how much snow is falling on North America. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were going to take the globe, think of the areas of the earth that are covered in snow. What percentage or what fraction do you think are in the northern hemisphere? Do you uh, think it's mostly in the north? I, oh, I think it's we got a whole, so th- there is no land on the North Pole. That but is there, true. But we do have land on the South Pole, so I'm thinking. But you could consider the north area, even without land, it's still right. covered by snow, snow and ice. One of these days we should do an episode where we swim to the <laughs> North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon? Yeah. <laughs> Santa's got a shop up there or yeah, something, that's right? right. Yeah. Or is it the South Pole? I don't know. <laughs> Man, I'm just going to go with the answer maybe being tricked here. So I know there's a lot of landmass in the northern hemisphere that you have, you know, North America and, and parts of Asia. Yeah. But I'm still going to say the southern. Oh, sorry. You weren't even com- you weren't asking north versus south. You were asking. Well, in a way I was. I'm going to go with I think there's more snow covered land in the south. No. No. Listen to this. Okay. 98% of the snow-covered area of the globe is in the northern hemisphere. Holy cow, okay, so... 98%. Because Antarctica's pretty big. It is, it's, but... It's like, isn't it like close to the size of Australia or something? Like, it's a pretty big continent. But compared to uh, compared to Asia, you know, northern Canada, wow. all that together. So the extent... Oh, you know what? You might be wrong, though, because if we live on a flat Earth, <laughs> <laughs> the snow wall goes in all directions infinitely. That is in true. Some. <laughs> in some theories <laughs> <laughs> well this study is obviously supporting the deep state <laughs> <laughs> big science in the deep state that's right oh that, that's a good band name <laughs> that is. very good all right so we should say this the extent of the snow cover is strongly seasonal so get this in august there's less than two million square kilometers but in january it goes to 45 million square kilometers and that's 30 percent of the earth's land surface so Snow-covered area plays a big role just in our global system. Mm -hmm. So for those of you that don't know or or need a refresher, when we talk about the subnivian zone, we're talking about that layer, that area. That's under land. (laughs) No, it's above the land. (laughs) But it's under the snow. (laughs) Right, right. And the snow is the metaphorical land we're talking about. That's right. Yeah. So it's the space between the bottom of the snowpack and the ground. Mm-hmm. So there's a small area there where lots of wildlife and ecological processes take place during the winter time. But it's very conditional because if you if you remember, I think you need at least don't you need about a meter of snow f- to have a significant warming? I don't think it was that much. I think it was something around 18 half inches. Half meter? Yeah. Okay. Like that. So maybe you need a half of me- half, half a meter. Who says half a meter? <laughs> <laughs> a foot and a half. Fine. You need a foot and a half of snow in order to get any benefits of living down there, or in other words, above freezing temperatures. Right. Yeah. So that's what I was just going to say next. If you've never heard of this, if you think about it, that area underneath the snow, it's going to have stable temperatures, and those temperatures are going to be right around freezing, which may not seem beneficial, but if you're thinking in terms of wildlife, 32 degrees Fahrenheit is really a pretty comfortable temperature for a lot of wildlife. And if you have sub-zero temperatures or much colder temperatures above the snow and wind and driving snow, underneath the snow, it's a calm and cool 32 degrees Fahrenheit. 
<laughs> yeah. And you still have plants that might be exposed, seeds that you can get to. Um, you're hidden from predators. Mm -hmm. It's a refugium for the yeah, wildlife. For certain sized wildlife. Because yes. I have to imagine that things like humans, which we, we don't have any business anyway, we're naked apes, so That's it's right. more for furry animals. Um, bears probably would not be able to take advantage no. of a subnivian. So zone. we're talking about small critters, <laughs> insects, small mammals. But heat that's released from the soil is trapped by the insulating snow. This heat slowly migrates upward through the snow layer, and it creates this vertical gradient of decreasing temperature. And that's what Steve was referring to. If the snow is not deep enough, the gradient's just not going to be big enough. Mm -hmm. So what made me think about this episode and doing this episode is the fact that here in western New York, I've noticed because of that episode we did, mm -hmm. this winter we have had almost no subnivian zone. I don't know if we have had one. This is the closest we've had, yes. and it only lasted for one or two days. So. Yeah, so we have had a very sporadic winter, very little snow, and when we've had it, it comes and goes quickly. Mm -hmm. So over the past two or so weeks, we've had consistent snow cover, but it really only has been deep enough to have a subnivian zone, like you said, for a few days. Yeah. And now it's going to rain, and it's going to be gone. Yeah, it's like I said, it's going to be 50 on Monday, and then I think it might drop below freezing again later in the week, but... It's not, we're not going to have a snowpack. No. So. so we are on the edge of what's called the cryosphere. Have you heard of oh, this? Oh, no. So the cry cryosphere is the regions that experience considerable but seasonal snow cover. Okay. You can really consider it the parts of the earth that have some form of frozen water. And we're right on the leading edge of that. Now, because of climate change, it's likely that the subnivian zone is going to deteriorate in both extent and quality and it's going to be especially severe along the trailing edge where we are. Yeah. Because our wildlife here, they've evolved to have a subnivian zone, at least for a, a portion of the winter. And now, like, I'd be surprised if this winter we have one at all. Or yeah. even if we do, it's so going to be yeah. for very short periods of time. So, yeah, so warmer winters tend to be a little bit more harsh on animals than colder winters because of, or I should say, as long as precipitation's the same between colder and warmer winters, we would expect colder winters because they have they would have a reliable snowpack to actually be more preferable by animals than a warmer winter. Right. So you might think, oh, warmer, that's great. No, warmer's no. not good. Colder actually means warmer for the animals because they can hide from the elements and maybe even predators underneath the snowpack. Right. So even though it's colder above the snowpack, it's actually warmer for the animals because they can be below the snowpack. Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive. Yeah. And climate change goes along with this. It makes it more complex because even though climate change in areas like where we live, we may get more snow over the winter. The amount of time that the snow is on the ground is going to be less. Yeah. So we're going to have these more intense snow events, but then we're going to have these warming periods in between them where the snow disappears. Yeah, and I think I even remember from that episode that the amount of precipitation that we should expect should also increase, Right. but it's just not going to stick around. Right. So for these animals that have evolved to what winter used to look like, yeah. things are going to change. They have to change. So the winter landscape the researchers said is it's often not a primary consideration in conservation management. They're just not thinking about the winter landscape. So changes to the subnivian zone are often overlooked. But if you think about it, this is a major type of habitat loss, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's a huge driver of ecological change. 
And so the researchers were recommending that conservation managers, land planners actually start to include the subnivian zone in their management plans. So those of you out there might be wondering, well, how the heck yeah, are you going to do Yeah, I was about to say how. Yeah. <laughs> how are you going to do that, right? Yeah. And they did say, well, this is going to be difficult to do locally. <laughs> but you can address site-specific threats, things like recreational snowmobiling or skiing, things that could compact the snow mm. snowpack. But then you can also do things that will enhance the quality and persistence of the subnivian zone when it's there, like increasing forest cover. Mm. Um, that's going to moderate ground temperature and prolong snow cover. Yeah. So there are changes that could be made locally to encourage the duration of the Subnivian Zone when it's there. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. I, I was just looking around to see if there was, because I think I remember us saying something about the differences between the snowpack under evergreen trees like a hemlock mm -hmm. and underneath hardwood trees. I was just trying to eyeball it really quick. So if you saw me looking around. I'm used to that. It's I'm usually... looking for an ambush. Yeah. <laughs> You're just not paying attention. I'm looking for hunters. Yeah. All right. So the last thing I wanted to share was actually a, a, several studies about one topic. And this is all about Lepis Americanus. Lepis? Uh, what, what is it? What do you think? Lepis. Sound familiar? Okay, the the root almost reminds me of something like, what what's the word for rabbits? Yeah. Oh, Lagomorph. Really? Lagomorph. Yeah. I don't know what. It just made me think of it for some reason, and You're, they're somehow related yeah. in your brain. Yeah. And I know almost nothing about rabbits, so <laughs> this is kind of exciting. Lepis or Lepis americanus is snowshoe hare. Okay. Snowshoe hares we don't have right here in western New York, but they do range across northern North America and their range dips down to the lower 48, basically wherever you have mountain ranges. So around mm -hmm. here, if you follow the Appalachians down, that's where the snowshoe hare migrates down. So we have them farther east in New York State and then right in Canada down in PA, they, they, you can find them there. Have you ever seen them before? Nope. Ever seen tracks? No. Oh, so. so I've only come across a few different rabbit species in my life. So we had, so obviously the cottontail around here. Yeah, we have the eastern cottontail, our only species in western New York. And when I was living in Utah, we had a lot of black-tailed jackrabbits or something. They were big. Yeah. You, and, and I saw them enough. Anyone from the southwest might have to correct me because I remember they weren't called rabbits. They weren't like black-tailed rabbits. I think they were, maybe it was black-tailed hare or black-tailed jackrabbit or something. I don't know. But uh, it was kind of cool to see a different species, and especially a species that was a bit bigger than what I was used to. The jackalope. Right? The jackalope. <laughs> it had antlers, so let me know if you guys know the name of that one. Not horns, <laughs> antlers. <laughs> no, these were horns, actually. Uh, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, if, you, if you have seen them before, the, the tracks especially, they look like a rabbit on steroids. Their feet are just so large. <laughs> the track pattern is similar, that kind of Y pattern. Mm -hmm. But you're just like, oh my God, what's wrong with those feet? Because yeah. they are so big. This is a species that in winter, they grow long white guard hairs to match the snow. Anyone that's heard about hairs at all, snowshoe hairs, probably has some idea that they change color typically. Yeah, and I uh, never heard the term guard hairs. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, I don't oh, think yeah. so. Those are the longer hairs. Yeah. So in summer, they have mostly rusty brown coats. And obviously this, this cryptic coloration is going to hide them from predators. Any, anything from lynx to coyotes, foxes, wolves, pine martens, birds of prey. They evolved in the plentiful winter snow in those beautiful boreal forests of northern North America. And they're really perfectly modeled for life there. Those large feet meant for running right across the top of the snow. 
you want to expand on that? Like why maybe would wide big feet oh. help on snow? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm thinking. You, yeah, you're saying it like everyone knows. <laughs> so obviously your, your body mass is going to be spread out over a larger surface area. Imagine a snowshoe. Right, so yeah. that's why they're called snowshoe areas. <laughs> so that's why they don't sink as far. Obviously they're going to sink some, but if you're being chased by a predator, say a wolf or a coyote, who doesn't have as large of a spread in relation to their body weight, they're going to sink deeper and hopefully you're going to be able to get away. Yeah. So if, if a coyote's ever chasing you, you want to <laughs> put on your snowshoes, <laughs> make sure you strap them on good and then book go. it. <laughs> I'm glad we made that connection. Yeah. <laughs> we could go, we can move on now. So across Canada, snowshoe hares, they have this synchronized population cycle where there's 10 year highs and lows. Say you're in the Yukon, their populations can peak to 200 to 300 individuals per square kilometer, but then it drops on the low part of the cycle to about seven. Holy cow, okay. So this huge up and down. And then the lynx, their, their predator up there, who also does have large feet, they've evolved large feet yeah. uh, for chasing them. Lynx follow a cycle that's just slightly behind the hair. So when lynx numbers go down, the hairs start to go up, obviously. So you just mean locally in, in an area, it could get yes. down to seven. Because obviously, you don't mean their population's just seven. Because <laughs> I'm like, at that point, you would just assume they're functionally extinct and they belong in a museum. <laughs> no, about seven per square kilometer. Got it, yeah. 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 So that's, that's, that's very few. <laughs> yeah, so that's what you call a negative feedback loop within nature. Now, do you mean negative feedback loop or do you mean predator-prey cycling or? Same thing. It's the same thing? It's the same thing. Okay, good yeah. to know. Yeah. We have these, these two forces working against each other where you're generally keeping something in homeostasis. Okay, yeah, good to know. That's a negative feedback loop. But there's lots of negative feedback loops out there. Predator-prey cycle is one of them. So these re the research that I looked into, it showed that these cycles are dampened in the southern range. So down into the states because hares don't have those same vast areas of boreal forest. So they just never reach their high peak counts. As their numbers rise, they have to disperse into habitat openings and that's where they get picked off. Yeah. <laughs> so this study focused on areas like in Montana where forests tend to be patchier naturally. So this is challenging for hares and then you also have logging and thinning going on. And these researchers for the past two decades, they've worked at 35 sites in Montana, Wyoming, and Washington. And their research has actually led to improved forest thinning practices where they've actually been working with logging companies to manage forests that, because of the practices, they're now healthier for snowshoe hares and hmm. in turn, lynx. So their research is having real world implications. Cool. Yeah. So how do you think climate change might be affecting snowshoe hares? Well, and Okay, well, <laughs> and just think about what we've just been saying about climate change and snow and snow levels and how it's going to act. Right. So I would just imagine that if there was lower snow levels or less reliable snowpacks, maybe they wouldn't blend in as much. Color mismatch. That's what they call it. Oh, okay. So if you're an organism that has evolved to rely on consistent snow cover throughout the winter and in the fall, your body says, all right, we're going white. But then for significant periods of time, the snow is gone. Yeah. You're screwed. Yeah, right. <laughs> because on a woodsy, non-snowy background, if you're white, that is the exact opposite of what you want to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> so as we said before, the climate trends are showing that while snow levels are going to vary from year to year, um, some years we're going to have more, 
some years we're gonna have less, but the days with snow on the ground, those are decreasing. Now, the signal for the hairs to shift their coat color, it comes from their pineal gland in their brain. Uh, it's Pine, the pineal gland? Yes. <laughs> The magical gland that the crystals and vibrations work with in humans? I don't know about that. You don't? Okay. Well, I used to work at a very <laughs> nice place, and they had a lot of pseudoscience and magical a thinking. Health store. Yeah, but people would talk about but the pineal gland all the time, as if it was, uh, oh, you, you can't have... Uh, fluoride, right? Fluoride? fluoride in your toothpaste or water or anything because it actually it hardens the pineal gland and that's the thing we use for our spiritual awakenings and oh. wow so I can't believe it so snowshoe hairs also have a spiritual <laughs> <They> awakening <do. laughs> better keep them away from fluoride yeah I guess so so that's how you say it the pineal gland I think so I think it's the pineal gland so in hairs it, it senses the shift in daylight length shortening days of autumn trigger the coat color change from brown to white. And yes, as you said, uh, we have a pineal gland and that's what produces melatonin. Mm -hmm. So for us, that's the hormone that affects our waking and sleeping patterns. And that mm -hmm. does respond to daylight length in us too. So this lack of snow obviously can cause big problems for snowshoe hairs. They call it color mismatch. One of the researchers said this, the coloration of the snowshoe hair and the, and the timing, it's a relatively fixed phenotype. So Tell people what does that mean. I know we've gone over it in previous right. episodes. But. So a phenotype is just either a behavior or a certain look or shape of something. <laughs> I'm doing a bad job. So, so a genotype is the genetic end of that, and a phenotype is the thing we actually experience. So if you have a genotype for red fur, the phenotype is the appearance of that red fur. So the genotype is the information in your genes kind of the directions and yeah. then the phenotype is what it ends up looking like right and this can be a behavior as well so it's not just like it could be it could be sending certain signals to, to other parts of the body sure. that make you act in one way or another but it so could like be a hibernation yeah so it could yeah. be a physical change it could be a behavior it's a number of number of different ways it can be expressed so if you're a snowshoe hare and your genes are telling you that hey when daylight starts to get shorter you need to change your coat color that's not something that according to this line in this paper that's going to change very quickly because yeah. you you could ask well can't the snowshoe hairs can't they just evolve a different timing for their coat change and researchers are looking into that and we are going to talk about that but before i get into that i just want to say that current telemetry data so people that are out there doing um, radio tracking radio collaring of snowshoe hares they are finding that spring and fall are the most deadly seasons for hares and those are the, the best season if you're a snowshoe hare predator <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's causing increased mortality so in areas where this color mismatch is happening right now a conservative estimate is saying mortality is increasing by like seven percent and it's just going to get worse Yeah. as, as climate change causes these conditions to worsen. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is happening is the range of the snowshoe hare. It's creeping north by about five and a half miles per decade. This is where it's happening, uh, where they're studying it, at least in Wisconsin. And this is closely tracking the diminishing snow cover. Or, you know what, and this is something that maybe the researchers haven't thought of, but maybe... Maybe the hares are moving north first 
<laughs> and that's causing the snowpack to diminish. The snow is following their pineal glands. Yeah, yeah. and maybe maybe it's the hairs that are making climate change happen too. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew, man? All right, well, we got to make sure that in future episodes, Steve has to do some research. Because <laughs> otherwise, my uh, yeah, I, I'm out of control actually. <laughs> So <laughs> putting out so much misinformation. Anything that I've said this episode, <laughs> you can ignore. We're but just Bill, cut Bill, out. Bill, saying the good stuff. <laughs> there was one part of this study that I enjoyed because they mentioned Aldo Leopold. Okay, yeah. So, uh, oh, it's uh, you had just posted about him. It's his. Oh, you posted about Ed Abbey. Ed Abbey yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so if you don't know who Aldo Leopold is, he wrote Sand County Almanac, which if you haven't read it, you need to read that book. One of the foundations of the modern conservation movement. Have you read it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you like it the first time you read it? Oh, I did. I really liked it. Did uh, you not like it? I did not like it the first really? time I read it. Okay. I, I wasn't ready for it. I was drinking the Kool-Aid at that point. I, I took Joe Allen's course. Well, there's a class at the university that Bill teaches called Wilderness. And before Bill taught it, we had another guy, Joe, teach it, Joe Allen. And he was such a good teacher, really fun, really passionate. Uh, he's the guy who made me read the book. And... I, I loved it. Like, I think it was because of Joe, maybe. I just instantly bought into it, and I was like, I'm going to love this book. And then I read it, and I'm like, I'm loving it. And then afterwards, I was like, I loved it. <laughs> and I would say that I wasn't, I was into the environment and nature and conservation when I read it, but I felt like it was too high of a level for me at that time. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, oh. I think you grew more quickly into conservation, scientific type thought at a younger age than I did. Maybe, so. because I, I think the first class I ever took was Bio 200, and we went over a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So I think I think maybe I had a slight bit more science background, yeah. maybe? Definitely. Okay. Because yeah. mine was definitely more the touchy-feely. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I think you forget that my undergraduate degree is not in biology. <laughs> but this paper said that in Wisconsin, where most of this particular paper, the, the area of study took place, he started snowshoe hair data back in 1945 when he was just recording anecdotally the presence of snowshoe hares in this arching trajectory covering about half the state uh, around the Mississippi River all the way up to Green Bay. And then studies of the hair and its range continued and expanded in the 60s. But then when this study took place just a few years ago, they went to uh, 148 of the historic sites. So there were 249 snowshoe hare survey sites initially, but a lot of those had disappeared because of changes in land use. Of the 148 they went to, 78% had no snowshoe hares. Oh. Okay. So just in the past 40, 50 years, over 78% of those sites, no more snowshoe hares. So they're using this data to track the progress of the snowshoe hares range north. Mm-hmm. Beyond the lack of snow cover that they're having to deal with, they're also dealing with the steady northward march of carnivores like coyotes. Mm. So they're really, they said, they're getting pinched at both ends. Yeah. Um, there's predators moving into their range, but then they're also dealing with this color mismatch. So they said the wildlife are going to either have to move, adapt, or die in response to climate change. But this is just another study that's signaling that climate change is beginning to eclipse land use as the dominant driver of ecological change. And you think of habitat destruction being really important, but also climate change is changing the habitat. Right. So it's almost tied in 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 a way. So I could definitely see those two things having a bit of overlap, you know, affecting each other for sure. So to get back to what I was saying before about the phenotype Mm -hmm. and whether or not they could, the snowshoe hares could adapt and change their coloration later or just have a mottled coloration, 
Uh, there was a recent paper that came out last year that looked at this that was, tell me if I have this right, if I understood the paper mm -hmm. right. They were looking at the plasticity of this phenotype. How changeable is it? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Because in certain areas of the country, like in the Cascades, certain areas of the Cascades or other parts of their range where snow cover wasn't historically so consistent, mm -hmm. some snowshoe hares in those areas don't change color, and some have more of a mottled white and brown. Mm. So there are some parts of the population where the coloration is different. So were you saying that um, the color change is very closely in step with the photo period, so the amount of sunlight in any given day. Correct. But they want to know how much variation that has, or can it change depending on the circumstance? Right. So yeah. the, the paper that just came out, it basically said, you know, like most subjects in science, the deeper you delve, the more complex it gets. Yeah. As I said, in some areas of the country, snowshoe hares don't change or their change is different. So they wanted to know, does this suggest some ability to evolve in response to temperature changes and snowfall cover rather than daylight length. Mm -hmm. And what the paper seemed to say is, yes, it does seem to show that there is some plasticity there. They just don't know how quickly they'll be able to change. Wow. So they don't know if the change will happen fast enough where populations can remain stable. One thing that the paper didn't get into and one thing that I, I didn't look into as much as I wanted to just because of time was how far north is their range expanding? Oh, okay. Right? Because you got to figure the farther north you go, there's going to be a lower population just because of temperature extremes and because of... Uh, they, they need their food plants and I don't know what... Uh, the forests. They need the yeah. boreal forest. So the boreal forest, I imagine, is going to be slowly expanding north as well. Mm -hmm. So these are, are questions that will hopefully be answered sometime in the future. All right. That was everything I had. Oh, yeah. Sounds good. So... I kind of want to use this last moment opportunity to bring something up about last episode okay. that you and I had talked about afterwards, and we normally say it out loud. We usually, uh, we're very transparent about everything. The way we were talking about mimicry and <laughs> models yeah. and things like that, we were being very fast and loose with our language, and we, we're normally like, ah, guys, but they're not trying. The mimics aren't trying to mimic the models. We usually say something like that, and I think that longtime listeners will have thought in that way. They're like, oh, the mimics aren't actually trying. Like, you don't, you don't try to evolve in a certain way. That's not the way evolution works. Yeah. The mimics are kind of... They're evolving. Yeah, they're, it's just evolution. They're just being picked. You know, the ones that aren't mimics enough are being picked off. The ones that are close, more closely mimicking, those are the ones that are surviving. Enough are surviving. This is just a very simple example. So they don't know they're mimicking, I don't think. <laughs> There's no conscious mimicry like a human might mimic someone. Right. It's not like that. <laughs> I do have to say, though, because Steve and I traded some messages about this. Steve was worried about it. I, I'm always worried about this because I hate talking the way that we were talking, but we did it. So. But yeah. I got to say, I've just been listening. Uh, I just started the audiobook for Origin of the Species. Mm -hmm. Darwin talks in that way sometimes, too. Really? Yeah. So, yes. And he doesn't qualify it like we're doing it here. So. Sure, yeah. But <laughs> I think it's okay. As most scientists and pro-science people, Darwin doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> Darwin's just a, a little flake of garbage on the side of history. <gasps> it, it doesn't matter what he said, because it could all be wrong. The only thing that matters is that we've 
after after Darwin's time, we've shown that his theory was correct, or we've mostly we've, correct. Yeah, we've kept improving on it, and yeah. we you know we discovered DNA, and we you know we he did a very good job, but he's not like someone we worship. <laughs> there are no darwinists or any of that stuff it's i don't know i would say there are darwinists but i understand what you mean right there's not like a, a cult of right worshipers. It, like it, all of his ideas could have been wrong it doesn't matter right. it's it, we would have eventually figured out all of this stuff anyway you just don't like having heroes do you no i no because uh i i don't like putting a face on it because it wasn't the person it was the ideas you know what i mean and i know the person had to think of the ideas but Right, and I suppose what you're doing is you're separating the ideas from the man because... Right, but then we also, just as much praise should go to the studies that discovered the way that we pass on our traits to the next generation because he didn't know that. There was a lot of stuff he didn't know. Right. So, so I mean, he was a brilliant scientist, but, I mean, you can't overemphasize any one person's contribution because that's you're, you're ignoring everyone else's contributions that came after him that proved all the things that he was putting out there. You're such a downer, Steve. I'm not. I'm not in, in fact, I'm, I'm expanding it that we need to, we need to be more recognizing yeah, of everyone else's efforts. It's human nature to, to want to look back to the quote A unquote, single person. Well, the quote-unquote <laughs> first. Sure. And even though he... He, he wasn't the first. Admit, <laughs> no. Even his father and then... But uh, his work was the first first widely accepted and read and right. so he was just a privileged white guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah like we are <laughs> yeah uh, and before all you guys uh unsubscribe to the podcast for my it was i don't even think it was an anti-darwin speech i really? think no i think it was just a neutral darwin speech that's all <laughs> all right i think we're ready to wrap up but before we do we need to give a special shout out to gumleaf usa yeah, so if you guys listen to the podcast before, you know that Gumleaf USA, they make super high-quality, comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. Bill and I actually own a pair of the Royal Zip model, and both of us have tried them out. We've also done a lot of field work where we've had to wear rubber boots, and without hesitation, we can say that these are easily the most comfortable boots that I've worn. Definitely. So they're handcrafted for comfort and fashion. They're a very simple design. They're 100% waterproof, durable, and made with 85% natural rubber, so you don't have to worry about them cracking. They have styles for men, women, and kids, and they're great for birding, botanizing, or any other outdoor activity. So if you're interested in high-quality tall rubber boots, we recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and exploring their products. It's also a really great way to support us and to help us do cooler things with the podcast. So there will be a link in the episode notes and on our website. All right, guys, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Christina and Gavin. Yeah, and did you know Gavin is a researcher at Buff State? Yes, 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 yes. I read the email. He wrote one of uh, the papers from the Downey Harry game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, I should also say this. I, I have to apologize about not getting back to everyone very quickly via email. <laughs> so often Bill will read the email and then mark it as unread. And then I'll read the email, mark it as unread. Then I'm like, okay, I should talk to Bill before responding. And then Bill and I, we're both so busy. We don't see each other a lot. And I wish we would see each other much more than we see each other. Yeah. But it just doesn't always work out. And then emails go unanswered because a lot of times you, have, you usually think, you know, we want to be on the same page yeah. before <laughs> responding yeah. to someone. So we apologize about that. We'll try to be better. But. Yeah, folks, I don't want you to, to feel like we're making excuses here, but there's a lot of times people will message us on Facebook or send emails and we don't have a chance to respond right away. But 
just know that you guys taking the time to reach out to us to contact us it really does mean the world to us and we wish we could get back to you sooner yeah all right so we're thankful for every single patron but at the end of every show we give special thanks to our top patrons so thank you dean rob we named the dog indy and especially ken diane Alyssa, morgan elizabeth daniel susan and rachel and finally, a special thank you to Kimberly, who increased their patronage. Hey, thank you, Kimberly. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, and we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers on iTunes. So thank you, D.B. Boyer, John Subnivian, and Gavin M. Leeton. Yeah, I think he was the uh, the researcher that yeah. we just mentioned. Yeah, I think oh. so, too. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you to our newest reviewer on Stitcher. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Heather S. 1229. Oh, thanks, Heather. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much, guys. And we also want to say thank you to Always Wandering Art. They usually provide the artwork for our episodes. So we have links on our website and in the episode notes. Yeah. And if you want to get in touch with us, if you have episode suggestions or just comments, you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Reach out to us on Facebook. You can tweet to us at fieldguidespod or check us out on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. You can also check out all of our old episodes on thefieldguidespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can always tell your smart speaker to play the Field Guides Podcast. And don't forget to go to gumleafusa.com and show them some support. And finally, parents... Don't forget to get your kids outside, let them get muddy, let them get dirty and snowy, turn over rocks, look under logs, let them spend some time out in the woods. Or just let your kids go play in a parking lot somewhere, because I did a lot of grocery shopping yesterday and I got disgusting <laughs> in, a, in the parking lot. Every single parking lot is like a pool filled with dirty, disgusting slush water. <laughs> it's, so it's that so if year. you really want them to get dirty, especially with all this snow melt, <laughs> that's one way to do it. But thank you guys so much. Thanks, and, uh, folks. Hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next month. Yeah, see you next month.